Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good afternoon. This is Mira Zakovich from the Applied Ethics Center at UMass Boston. Uh, this is our podcast, Ethics in Action, and our guest today is my friend and colleague, Jay Hughes. Hey, Jay. Hey. How are you? Very good. So I will say a few words on Jay, which I wrote down on my trusty cell phone here, uh, and then we will get right to our discussion. So Jay is a sociologist and a bioethicist. He is the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He's also a senior research fellow at our center at the Center for Applied Ethics uh, at UMass. And he is also the associate provost for institutional research assessment and planning at UMass. UMass Boston, that is. Uh, Jay is the author of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the redesigned human of the future. And he is currently writing a book about moral bioenhancement. That book is tentatively called Cyborg Buddha, using neurotechnology to become better people. Um, and Jay and I will be talking about um, a recent piece of his and some work that he's been doing on something called uh, algorithmic governance. Uh, so Jay, maybe, uh, we could start with um, my asking you, uh, what is algorithmic governance? Why you um, think it's important? How you became interested in it? We'll sure. There. Well, um, <clears throat> I got interested in the question of automation back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, when I first got interested in social sciences, and my dissertation research was actually originally titled, Do We Need Doctors? And my um, dissertation chair didn't like that title. So eventually I made it into a, a rationalization of American medicine, something like that. But it was ba basically the question of whether artificial intelligence plus organizations would be able to do everything that doctors do better. I still believe I was right that it will eventually, but- Yeah, I was gonna say, it looks like we came full circle. <laughs> I know, it's taking longer than I thought, which is yeah. true with a lot of futurism, but, um, but I think that that's the case. Um, and over the last 20 years, I've been uh, you know, increasingly engaged with the question of technological automation. One of our, our colleagues at the IET, John Danaher, who's an Irish legal theorist, he um, started to write about five years ago about algorithmic governance about the question in particular of the application of algorithms and artificial intelligence to the various tasks of governance, which was something I hadn't given a lot of thought to. But um, I started to look at things like, does technological unemployment, is there evidence of it in uh, uh, state employment of various sorts? So um, the automation of various kinds of state services, what have been the trends of the employment of uh, state employees, uh, the automation of military, the automation of policing, the automation of law. 
And um, in all of those spheres, there are, there's a lot of hype, as there is with everything. There are a lot of people who think that right around the corner, something's going to disappear, and it doesn't. But there's also an increasing um, awareness that we are, in fact, uh, applying artificial intelligence, big data algorithms to those various tasks, and that those are having tangible consequences. Now, this isn't the withering of the state as imagined by the old socialists, which would be that the state is only there to protect property, and once we all own everything in common, there won't be a state. This is the withering of the state under the means of production, the development of the means of production, basically. The, the means of production are becoming increasingly algorithmic and don't need humans, and the state doesn't necessarily need humans. Now, that will have some political, economic, all kinds of consequences all over this, the place. The other place where algorithmic governance is getting a lot of attention is algorithmic bias, um, which is the area of once we do something like a sentencing algorithm, um, so if we, uh, as many states do, try to assist um, judges to overcome some of the intrinsic and well-documented biases of the judicial system, and say, uh, when you're trying to figure out how much bail to assess or when you're trying to uh, sentence someone for a crime or figure out if they should uh, get parole, um, what are the predictors of recidivism and, um, and severity that you should use? Um, it turns out that those, uh, as we find in many spheres of big data, those turn out to reflect, in many cases, the biases of our society. So, you know, if you're trying to uh, figure out who's going to be a good risk for a home loan, um, uh, the fact that African Americans have basically zero net wealth in the United States compared to, you know, astronomically uh, order of magnitude greater wealth than the part of whites, well, yes, your algorithm is going to say uh, don't loan to African Americans, but that's a consequence of racial. Uh, dynamics in the United States, and maybe we shouldn't allow it to do that. So those are the kinds of things that people have been looking at in algorithmic governance, but as usual, both as a contrarian and as a person who tries to avoid the Scylla and Charybdis of techno-utopianism and techno-skepticism, um, I have tried to think about this in a little bit deeper framework, and so this paper is basically an argument that, from a sociological point of view, um, the things that people are complaining about in terms of the algorithmic nature of, of governance or the application of algorithms to governments are things that they have complained about since the advent of bureaucracy um, and that a bureaucracy and algorithms have the same advantages and disadvantages. They have the advantages, bureaucracy itself, if you, uh, you know, have a dispute with your neighbor over um, where their, your border of your land is, you want to be able to go to someone who has a record that says this is where your land begins and ends, and this is how we determine these kinds of conflicts and where what you should do. Um, if you if the local bureaucrat gets to make that up every time you go in, that's not a very good state of affairs. And so bureaucracies are basically the, the rationalization and the routinization of all kinds of social procedures, which we want to be rationalized and routinized. So really what you're saying is that a bureaucracy is a paper algorithm and it's essentially being replaced by a, flat <coughs> by a silicon algorithm. Exactly. And, 
And that one of the advantages of replacing the humans involved in that process is that the humans introduce all kinds of biases of their own, even though you have these rules on the, on the books, that they may not get enforced fairly. Uh, the structure of the rules them in the first place may not be fair. And so um, algorithmization may in fact allow us a certain uh, re-examination and transparency of the way that we govern ourselves. Yeah. So that's part of the optimism about, um, or at least the, the pushback is that um, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to denigrate this uh, inclusion of algorithms. It's an inevitable uh, historical process and has a lot of advantages. Um, I think the uh, conclusion of the piece that I wrote though is more about the uh, democratization of algorithms and big data. And one of the persistent questions being, well, if we invent the printing press and only states get to use it, and they use it to print state propaganda, that's not very good for democracy. We have to have uh, printing presses in the hands of the people in order for there to be a democratization of information and views. And in the same way, the tools that allow the organization and the, um, the, the force multiplier of, of artificial intelligence that has to be somehow connected to democratic movements. We have to figure out how to use these same uh, algorithmic and, and artificial intelligent tools to organize each other, to communicate, to make uh, collective decisions, and potentially to uh, come up with better models than representative democracy. Isn't it, um, so just go, to go back for a moment to, um, the advantage that you were discussing of algorithmic governance to um, present itself as more uh, fair, more consistent, more transparent. Um, sometimes it can be the advantage of the flesh and blood bureaucrat that they deviate from right their rule, that they make an exception to the rule, that they're moved by mercy, that they, you know, dismiss, as it were, the minimum guiding, uh, minimum sentencing guidelines and so forth, uh, because they saw something in the case that reminded them of their child or uh, what have you. Are you worried that we're losing some of that, or is that not a big loss? I think that's a, an important place to interrogate the process. I mean, I think minimum sentencing guidelines are a good example that in one way, they could be seen as the imposition of fairness, that the recognition that there were uh, unfair practices that uh, you know, sent African-Americans for longer jail terms than whites for the same uh, crimes uh, could be seen as a form of fairness. Of course, the actual implementation of, um, of those rules was that they were applied to African-American crimes <laughs> to a greater extent than, than the crimes of whites. So, um, I do think we have to interrogate whether a certain amount of discretion is uh, uh, necessary and also um, useful. John has actually, uh, in his series of uh, podcasts about algorithmic governance, he came up with one example that I thought was compelling, which was that um, I think it was uh, at, the, uh, <laughs> at the U.S. Military Academy, they tried to come up with an algorithmic um, uh, speed uh, enforcement mechanism. So the mechanism would say, well, if, if you had in your car something that would just detect if you went over the speed limit and gave you a, uh, automatically labeled, uh, uh, gave you a fine for that, 
Um, how would that work? Well, it turns out that those of us who drive in general, um, generally drive over the speed limit. And so maybe we could drive closer to the speed limit with that kind of a tool. But even trying to drive at the speed limit, you often go over the speed limit, uh, you know, numerous times, maybe in, in the minute, <laughs> you know, not, not to mention the entire trip. Um, and so what they found when they tried to test these tools was that people were being fined hundreds of times uh, for going over the speed limit. Well, then you say, well, okay, well, let's give people some slack and it, it's five miles over the speed limit when you get the fine, as the way cops sometimes do. Mm -hmm. um, and well, then people will just drive at that limit and go over a hundred times. So we do have some areas of ambiguity and slack in a human designed uh, law enforcement system uh, or governance system that are useful um, and that we don't yet know how to, to work around. Um, <clears throat> with the case of lethal autonomous robotics that you and I have talked about before, um, Ron Arkin has made the argument that if you put the rules of war into a lethal robot, uh, at least theoretically, we could have uh, lethal robots that we would, in a counterfactual situation, we either send in humans to do a job or we send in a robot to do a job. You could imagine that we could get robots sufficiently sophisticated that they would have a lower rate of shooting their own soldiers, shooting civilians, shooting more of the enemy than are necessary to secure the situation or whatever, that we could have better outcomes with lethal robots. Um, but what you would lose and what many people worry about is that moment of conscience. Now, I think that moment of conscience in the battlefield takes place far less often than people imagine. Um, and to the extent that it does happen, I'm not sure we want it to happen, right? I mean, I mean just to, if we're going to have militaries um, and they are going to give orders to people to go out and do something, um, and then, you know, Bo Bergdahl says, well, man, I, maybe I'm just going to walk off the reservation here and go try to make an individual peace with, with ISIS, leading to the deaths of dozens of comrades. I don't know that that's necessarily the future that we want. So I think we really have to interrogate this notion of do we want human slack? The, the overwhelming evidence is that human slack in judges or hiring decisions or school admissions all the places we're applying algorithms, the, the majority of the influence of human discretion is to introduce unpleasant biases and not to actually give a break to people. Right, so if we go back to that example that you and I have discussed some time ago for every George Orwell who has a pang of conscience when he sees the fascist soldier uh, you know, going to the bathroom and is wondering whether he's allowed to shoot them or not, there are many other moments in which people are animated by hate, by despise, by all kinds of other biases. And <clears throat> the overall result, as it were, I think you're saying might uh, be much better if those kind of judgments were automated and you lost both the moment of pity and many of the moments of petty cruelty, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's another aspect to the algorithmic governance argument that I make in the paper <clears throat> that has to do with the um, historic uh, failure of planned economies, uh, at least in developing nations like Russia and China. 
um, and their turn towards more market mechanisms. Um, uh, an explanation of that having been given by Hayek and Mises and, and uh, Austrian school, um, that the number of calculations of where stuff needs to go, where it optimally everything needs to be in an economy in order for everybody to get the best of all the possible worlds, um, that the markets, even with all the inefficiencies that they have, uh, the, fa the market failures, the, uh, the inequality of distribution, that they do a better job of that than the planned economies did, which um, they just never had the information architecture to um, try to do that. Now, the Austrians would argue that you could never have the information architecture to do better than the market. I think one of the questions posed by the emergence of not only artificial intelligence and big data, but also the Internet of Things, the ability to track everything in a society, every object, um, is that we might be able to, in the future, uh, have planning mechanisms or uh, macroeconomic oversight mechanisms that accomplish some of the goals that were imagined by Russian cyberneticians, um, but were never, they never had the computers to do. And uh, now, I'm, it's not necessarily, I'm not carrying a brief necessarily for a planned economy, but I think that, um, you know, in terms of commanding the macro heights of an economy, we have, you know, hundreds of economic indicators that investors wait on every week to uh, see, you know, how many uh, homes were built, how many jobs were, um, were hired, how many uh, people were laid off and so forth, that it gives them an indication about uh, investor confidence and so forth, and that we need to uh, imagine what um, the mechanisms that we've developed within capitalism. So within Walmart, Walmart having a macroeconomic footprint that's bigger than most of the world's countries, um, within Walmart having a relatively planned economy that pioneered the Internet of Things tracking of every object in their economy, um, you could imagine, as uh, Marx and Engels would have said, that the uh, seeds of a new world are being born within the, the body of the old. So let me ask you, Jay, just a sort of kind of uh, straightforward uh, projection type of question. What do you expect 25, 30 years down the road might be the functions of government that would be algorithmized if things continue in current trajectory? Something like on the humdrum local government level, something like tax assessments would be algorithmized. Uh, um, what, what would some other uh, examples be? Well, taxes are a good example because um, it requires the uh, creation of big data. Um, we don't do this on paper anymore. It's all electronic. And we have applied, or at least the uh, American IRS have, have applied, artificial intelligence tools to the detection of tax fraud or the prediction of where they might best investigate tax fraud. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's you know, a, a place, an obvious place. Um, I think every sphere of governance will be eventually affected. And what the major consequence of that is that those particular occupations will require fewer humans to do them. Uh, at least the humans will be complementary with the artificial intelligence tools so that you'll need you know, 
a tenth of as many tax assessors because they will have these new tools. Just as you've seen in law firms where uh, the process of discovery, of legal discovery, would have required uh, a team of paralegals sorting through boxes and boxes of, um, of documents, and now you have an artificial intelligence tasked to do the same thing with electronic documents in, in a fraction of the time. And um, so I think every sphere of government governance is subject to this, including the physical occupations. We've seen uh, postal work um, dramatically affected, uh, you know, in the postal sorting stations, the dramatic decline in the number of workers needed, um, uh, leading to the phrase going postal, you know, the, the stresses of technological unemployment in the public and private sector are enormous. Um, we we're seeing uh, the U.S. military um, uh, having a plan to replace at least a quarter of manpower with di different kinds of robotics, and an increasing reliance on big data in both intelligence and military and policing, predictive policing, um, and so forth. I think one of the arguments I've made since Black Lives Matter is that if it was put on the table in a lot of poor communities in the United States, that you could have RoboCop on your streets versus human cops, yeah. a, lot, a lot of communities might say, RoboCop sounds like a better idea. At least, a, at least there's no reason to uh, think that RoboCop would be programmed in a racist way. Right. Now, Robo, RoboCops could have, you could put twice as many of them in a poor neighborhood as a rich neighborhood probably would happen. Um, you, could, you could make them racist, you could make them uh, violent, but um, there's no reason to imagine that they would right. be on the, on the, on the Right, so, so, so this goes back to, um, you know, something that as you know, I've been working on with Dan, and um, it goes to your point about uh, the degree to which the AIs embody the prejudices of the people who code them. You know, Kathy O'Neill has written about this in uh, Weapons of Math Destruction and the notion as well, the algorithms are going to reflect the biases uh, and so on and so forth of the uh, coders. Uh, this, uh, I, I'm very sympathetic to your position. This seems to me to be an exaggerated concern or maybe a different way of saying this. It's a concern, but it's a technical concern. It's a concern that can be solved. Uh, the algorithms can be fixed, the coders themselves can become more diverse so that uh, less, fewer, or different biases are uh, being reflected. There can be a, there, there can be a quality control uh, mechanism. So one thing is, you know, that Dan and I have been, uh, that is uh, our colleague uh, Dan Feldman uh, and myself have been curious about is, um, what happens if these algorithms actually are going to be successes uh, in the way that you um, are claiming uh, or are portraying for us that they will be and that they become gradually more efficient and more fair and less biased than our judgments? Um, one question, one sort of, so for me, you're right. For me, the lack of fairness of these algorithms isn't the main reason, isn't a reason even in the end to worry about them. Uh, however, and here we probably part ways, the narrowing of the scope for us to make judgments 
that comes about as a result of this uh, is a different question to me. So in other words, if you sort of assume that we are fundamentally judgment-making creatures, and for most of us, they're kind of everyday, average, shitty little judgments that have to do with our non-glamorous bureaucratic tasks at work, and those become automated, we'll just have less context to make judgments. Is that a problem? I think that that's uh, similar to the question of whether all human work will be eliminated. I mean, I think it's quite possible to imagine that, yes, there will be a declining scope for certain kinds of human discretion, um, but that that would allow us to put greater attention into algorithmic transparency, critiques of algorithms and their unintended consequences, and and uh, attempting to create uh, a space for human discretion yeah. it needs to exist. And um, I think, you know, the OECD uh, economists pushed back two years ago. Oxford had done this study uh, five, six years ago where they suggested that half of all jobs in the West were, sub were vulnerable to automation. And the OECD pushed back and they said, look, what really happens is that if uh, in every job there's an automatable routine part of it and there's the less automatable human uh, judgment, creativity, human emotional intelligence kind of part of it. Um, and that if you start to automate the routine parts, jobs change and, they, and the people begin to do more of the creative and human parts of their job. And that's the really optimistic. If there isn't uh, technological unemployment in the future, it'll be because we change the nature of work to increasingly do what humans are good at and, and not uh, the parts that we're bad at. We're bad at consistently applying rules, right? And so if, if we can get AI to tell us at least when we're not um, or to do it for us, that would be great. And then we can concentrate on the things we're good at. But the beauty of machine learning, the promise of machine learning is that it's not only about applying rules, it's about assigning weights, it's about essentially increasingly um, mimicking human judgment making processes. Not quite yet, but that's the direction where it's going. So there, it does seem like, you know, tasks that required, that used to require judgment will be automated or at least are in principle automatable. I mean, it does seem like, as you were saying earlier, parts of the means of production, both in government and in the private economy are going to become automated. And, you know, some of us will sort of move to the sunlit uplands of becoming strategists, right? And, uh, but we won't all become strategists. I mean, I come from Israel where everybody's a strategist, but that's not, that's not realistic either, right? Uh, well, there has been a decline over the last 150 years in the number of hours that the average working person has to work. Um, and that's, of course, one of the optimistic scenarios for automation right. in the future is that even if we all still have jobs, mm -hmm. at least we won't necessarily have 40-hour work weeks and 50-hour right. work years, 50-hour yeah. work years. Um, and we could all take more vacations. Um, I, Americans are obliged to that by our <laughs> lack of social policy to begin with. Yeah. So, 
Um, but, you know, it, I think that's one of the questions about the future. I do expect there to be technological unemployment in the future. That is an overall decline of, of jobs. Mm -hmm. and, and it would take some pretty um, radical rethinking of the allocation of labor markets to, uh, you know, like a 30-hour work week or whatever to truly reallocate jobs in a way that will keep everybody employed in that future. But at any rate, um, yeah, I, I don't think everyone's going to want to become, um, you know, high-skilled uh, postdoctoral um, you know, researchers in the future or uh, graphic designers or whatever the jobs of the future might be. Um, and some of us will just prefer to be on vacation. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what, um, I guess one, one other question. Uh, if this does happen and it is, and if it increasingly becomes a success. So if current trends continue, and I think if current, trends continue, it will become a success. It's already becoming a success. Um, some of the intangibles of, for example, trust in government, how do you see that transition uh, going on? Uh, it seems like part of what allows people to develop affective attitudes towards their government, of either trust or resentment, of either love, as in the case of patriotism or uh, uh, some kind of despise or what have you have to do with its human nature to the extent that it's important to have feelings towards government, feelings of trust, feelings of protect, being protective, feelings of love in the case of patriotism, which once in a while is necessary. Um, is algorithmic governance um, consistent with preserving any of those attitudes towards government? It's a complicated question because it's not really either or. Um, if governments start to apply algorithms, they can either screw things up or do things better. If they do things better, hopefully that will lead to more trust. But mm -hmm. if you compare currently the amount of trust that Americans have towards Google versus Congress, you know, yeah. um, I think a no, lot of Americans... It, they haven't really been posed the question of would you prefer to get rid of this um, failure, obvious failure that we have for American democracy and replace it with some kind of technocracy run by the best and the brightest from Silicon Valley. They haven't really been posed that question, but I suspect that there might be a market for that. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the rise of authoritarian strongmen, Putin, uh, and, and people like him throughout the world, it's not simply a reflection of nativism, xenophobia, and those kinds of things. It's also a reflection, in the case of Putin, for instance, of the uh, disarray of um, uh, capitalism when it was reintroduced in the Soviet Union in the 90s. Um, Putin represented a technocratic authoritarianism, which would reestablish re and apparently to all intents and purposes that we can tell externally, uh, he is re remarkably popular for having restored the order. Um, one of the historic trade-offs that the Chinese have, you know, the Tiananmen Square massacre here behind me is on my wall, but one of the historic uh, trade-offs that the Chinese appear to have made is, well, as long as you keep the lid on sufficiently to ensure high growth rates, um, you know, your authoritarian repression is, uh, it will be acceptable. We'll see if that continues in the future. Mm -hmm. So 
I think in, at least in the case of, and China is another case of, uh, of the kind of counterfactual of authoritarian uses of algorithms. You know, the uh, Sesame credit score system right. that China has come up with, with the collaboration of Tencent <laughs> and Alibaba, um, right. they are combining uh, debt score information with political trustworthiness information, with social network information about who you're friends with, right. uh, what you spend your resources on, how you spend your time, um, and then denying people home loans and travel and visas and higher education. People aren't being able to get married. There's now an app in Beijing that will alert you if you're even in the physical proximity of someone who's a bad social credit score debtor. Right. Um, this is basically the gamification of totalitarianism. Right. Um, now, the, the first question... Are you worried about it? And I'm very worried about it. But the first question to every techno-progressive, that the view that I propound, has to ask is, A, is this actually different from previous things, or is it just you know, the intensification of certain trends that we've had for a long time. I think it's really the intensification. And you can see some of those things happening in the West already uh, with debt scoring and, and, uh, and social media call-out culture and so forth. And second, is it really the problem of the technology or is it the problem of the political economy around the technology? And I think that that's where I would put the emphasis. Well, after the technology gets to a certain point, that becomes a distinction without a difference though, no? Well, in the United States uh, and in the West, uh, you know, if you look at the GDPR and the, um, the, the data protection policies that the European Union have adopted, they've pretty radically institutionalized in a way that has a lot of unintended and uh, bureaucratic consequences that a lot of us don't like. But they have attempted to institutionalize data privacy and the, um, the impermissibility of combining various kinds of consumer and political and demographic data in a way that would allow this kind of control. Now, in the United States, we don't have those protections. So we have capitalist firms buying up every piece of information they can get about you and then micro-targeting you. And, and sometimes the Russians also get involved in that and right. they come in and, and try to sway your vote. Right. Um, and that has some social control consequences. But still, in the United States and in Europe, we have the capacity to, to organize, pass laws, complain about these policies as we see them impacting freedom and democracy, and the Chinese don't have that. Um, and so, you know, as with ecology, you know, is I, the, the socialist slogan that capitalism is destroying the planet is absurd because you look at China, the reason that China's cities are full of smog is because state capitalists and state planners will also prioritize economic growth over long-term ecological stability. It's a, but what you, the difference is, is that here it's legal to organize uh, for environmental policies. It's legal to critique the government for environmental uh, degradation, and there you can get thrown in prison. So I think really the difference between an algorithmic future democracy or democratization of algorithms in the future and an authoritarian use is not the presence of the technology, it's the presence of democracy. Well, you know what, I mean, the. Uh, your great example about the social credit system in China got me thinking there's a complicated relationship between the degree of freedom and the degree of competence and efficiency in government, right? If you have completely corrupt, incompetent government, 
that's a real impediment to political freedom because your ability to plan is completely destroyed and your ability to rely on uh, 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 government structures uh, isn't there. Um, Right. Well, you, you know, you go back to the first working men's international and Marx and Bakunin were the two leaders. And Marx said, well, you know, after the revolution, we'll have to have this um, worker state, a dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, and then eventually we'll, we'll be able to get rid of that. And Bakunin said, no, nah. because as soon as you put all these bureaucrats in power, they're going to have the interests of bureaucrats. They're going to be a class end of themselves. They're going to have their little dachas that they go to. They're right. going to skim off the profits of the public sector. They're going to send out cops to beat up workers who try to organize just the same way the capitalists did. And guess right. who was right? Bakunin was right. right. Now, a, a robot, an algorithm, if, if algorithms decimate public employment the way we're talking about, you're basically talking about the elimination of bureaucracy as a class. Mm -hmm. um, and the ability then to have a democratic transition where some kind of democratic planning mechanism um, is, uh, is more realistic, um, I think is much more likely. So I think the withering of the state may precede <laughs> some of these uh, democratic changes. Yeah, that's interesting, because the other side of my argument was going to be that on the other hand, some inefficiency, and inefficiency is likely to be um, reduced by algorithmic governance, some inefficiency is conducive of freedom because you can exploit it, you can, take, you can take advantage of it, right? Well, is that, is that freedom, right? I mean, the Italian, the, all of Southern Europe are right. a conservation culture. And right. as a consequence, their democracies, their social democracies are in chronic, chronic fiscal crisis. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons that people resist um, the decashification of society, you know, Modi for being a fascist, um, I do greatly admire that all of a sudden one day he announced no more low bills or no more big bills in the in the Indian economy, no more rupees, whatever whatever his change was. He tried to decashify the economy. And people have proposed here that like 80% of hundred dollar bills in use in the world are being used in gray mm -hmm. or black economies. So if we just eliminated cash, we and all and all transactions had to be electronic and therefore traceable, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the Offshore accounts, a lot, you know, a lot of things would be fixed if we had complete data transparency mm -hmm. of money at that level. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there's a, I, I think that the the alleged beauty of the inefficiencies of the human uh, governance is dissipates when you look at the mm. enormous costs. Mm. So that's kind of, if I'm reading between the lines for you, that's kind of cheap romanticism, the alleged beauty of the human inefficiencies. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I'm a partisan of the Enlightenment, you know. <laughs> Neo Jacobin. <laughs> gotcha. Mechanical Jacobin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Um, so, um, Northeastern got this huge uh, donation. Mill. Yeah, uh, not a long time ago to um, either rebuild or start another um, engineering school and uh, I was reading in the press releases that part of um, how they want to rebrand and reorient themselves is um, to robot proof the engineers of the future or the students of the future that the new sort of strategic imperative of any educational 
institution is um, robot proofing. That's becoming increasingly uh, a very uh, prominent buzzword. And um, I'm, inc I'm increasingly skeptical uh, of whether that's either coherent or possible. What's, what's your sense of, um, for example, I mean, if you want to answer this specifically in the context of governance, or if you want to answer this in the uh, more broad economic uh, context, can we figure out what jobs can be robot-proofed? Can we identify skills that are robot-proofed, uh, or is that a losing proposition? Well, this book that uh, Lagrander and I put out, um, Surviving the Machine Age, we originally had a plan for 10 chapters and the final chapter, after most of us were technological unemployment, you know, um, true believers and advocating universal basic income, we thought we need to get somebody in here just to balance this all out. If this doesn't take, you know, if there isn't a, an overall decline of jobs, what, what kinds of advice would you give to young people today about how to robot, robot proof uh, for themselves, for the jobs that will exist in the future? And, um, so the person that we had initially invited uh, backed out because he got convinced that there was an inevitability of technological employment. So I had to pick up that, um, that slack and write that chapter. And, um, you know, I, I got caught in this ringer, as I mentioned at the top, um, with my dissertation. My, the big critique from my dissertation chair was that I had a unilinear view of history about how managed care and the ca American capitalist medicine was going to frog march us into a doctrinalist future. And he said, the, the future rarely turns out to be this, you know, linear and predictable. Uh, and he was right. Uh, managed care turned out not to be very popular after a decade. Um, and we have all kinds of other things that are happening in the market. Now, I think in the long run, <laughs> it still will be true. Um, I'm, I'm, where was I going with all this? Uh, technological unemployment. I started at the top. Like I lost it. Think about dissertation. If you think there is such a thing as robot proofing, if we, if oh, we, yeah. we can identify the skills that are machine proof. Right. So the conclusion of the chapter that I wrote was that um, a lot of research suggests that the most resistant areas of human skills um, within jobs or between jobs. So it's back to this OECD question. The OECD folks are right. We won't have very much erosion of employment. What we'll have is the changing definition of jobs and the skill compositions of jobs. Um, I still think they're wrong because when you have an, an AI plus one um, legal counselor uh, uh, connected to the internet, you don't need everybody to have a CPA. You can have one person doing the same work of 10 or 100. Um, and so that there will be a decline of employment. But whether whoever's right, uh, the, the skill composition change or the actual job change, um, we, the kinds of skills that we're most resistant are creativity, human emotional intelligence, uh, socio-emotional understandings of various kinds that are very hard to program into machines, and complex manual skills. So. This is one of the explanations for skill-biased technological change and its effect on inequality. In other words, that at the bottom of, of the income scale, you have a lot of occupations that require numerous complex physical tasks. 
Uh, so like a home health nurse has to do a lot of things in the home. And it's very difficult to imagine in the short term robots being sufficiently complex to do those. Mm -hmm. um, and at the top of the income scale, you have complex uh, intellectual tasks that require lots of education or lots of creativity or lots of insights or whatever. And, um, and it's currently hard to imagine those being affected by automation, but it's the ones in the middle, the highly automatable things in the middle mm -hmm. that have been affected. And as a consequence, this has contributed to the growing inequality we see. Now, mm -hmm. I think both at the top and the bottom, those things are not permanently uh, implacable against automation, but um, that's it, in the next 20 or 30 years. You know, I have a daughter, she's training to become a biologist, and my son is a labor organizer. I don't see either of those jobs being, uh, you know, one, one being technical and the other uh, and highly trained and the other being social emotional intelligence, basically. I don't see those uh, going away anytime soon. So I think there are quite a few occupations you could steer people towards. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to um, going back to your earlier discussion about <clears throat> the argument about bureaucracy in the beginning of Marxism. Going back to your statement about um, being a child of the Enlightenment. So it seems like the general um, gist of the thing is that while the introduction of uh, bureaucracy opens up the space for corruption, protectionism, and so on and so forth, the replacement of paper bureaucracy with mechanical bureaucracy gradually closes the space and that's part of its promise. There has to be less and less possibility for corruption um, as this is increasingly promoted. So essentially the project, this kind of optimistic enlightenment, Cartesian masters and possessors of nature type of project is to- Gee, what a box you just put me in. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're a box man. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> but basically the idea is we slowly remove human beings from the picture. It's tempting to make an argument for corruption under those circumstances, no? I don't want to, well, you, you, let's do a little tit for tat. You just put me in a nice um, intellectual box. I'll, I'll tit it back to you, which is that I think there's a certain amount of privilege in the perspective of, oh, if we start automating justice, um, it will be bad for people because we won't have the same discretion. A lot of people in the world don't that's, benefit from that discretion. That's, the people that's, who tend to benefit from that discretion are the ones who tend to advocate for that discretion, right? Yeah, that's that. That's a very fair point, and I really like I really liked your argument earlier that there's plenty of neighborhoods that would welcome RoboCop, right? Um, and which you know is a testament to what the not RoboCops are doing uh, wrong and what they're not. Um, so. I think that's fair enough. I think that I think that's fair enough. Whether or not, I mean, I, I'd have to think about it. Whether uh, this kind of um, bias towards the frivolity and the fallibility of the human is a essentially conservative upper class bias from people who haven't primarily been hurt by it. That's I mean, that's a fair question. Uh, well, I'll stay in my box and I'll think about it. <laughs> well, I, 
I think to be slightly more complex about your question of corruption, um, it's possible, it's already um, happening in the world that if you're a high-speed trader, the nanoseconds that it takes for you to communicate with Wall Street and to, for your bot to make a decision are, have tangible economic consequences. And so the, some of, it's not just insider trading that we worry about anymore. It's also the actual architecture of decision making, which gives a structural advantage to certain kinds of people over others. You know, if you think about the architecture of intelligence information, um, if you know that you know Venezuela is about to collapse or there's about to be a war in some place, you can you know that's a tangible political and economic advantage in the world. So I think we have to think you know more deeply about what it means to democratize the information architecture, the algorithms of the world, um, and what it means to have more bottom-up transparency and control. Um, it's not just a matter of critiquing some biases here and there the actual way we put together these uh, architectures have to be interrogated. Mm. That's very cool. Jay, this has been great. This has been really, really interesting and thank you. And um, you will be giving a talk about this uh, at UMass. Do you, do you have the date so we could share that with our listeners in front of you? Um, I'm sorry, Nira, I forgot. Well, why don't we say uh, in the show notes below, we'll uh, link to the paper very good. The date of the talk. Very, very, very good. So I'm going to stop the recording. Jay, thanks again. Sure. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.